Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Riddell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sensat. Hey, man, how you doing? Glad to be back, man. Glad to be back. You know, you inspired me last year when, um, or one of the last seasons, when you brought on a professor, so I felt like I had to return the favor. So on this episode, uh, we had Dr. Debbie Phillips. She's the president of the Quadrillion. She's an adjunct professor at New School of Architecture and Design. She was also one of my former professors at Georgia Tech. And, uh, you know, she was, she was incredibly enjoyable to listen to. Um, but a lot of our talk focused on this idea of the, you know, new era we are entering to sort of the employee empowerment era. We talked a lot about talent engagement and how to build those cultures. What'd you think? Um, Debbie definitely brought the energy and I left the conversation in a really good mood. Um, just cause she's definitely one of those people who kind of knows how to brighten your day. And also, um, you know, while she's brightening your day, she's definitely teaching you a whole lot and recommending a lot of books to read. Um, so, you know, it wasn't necessarily a p- episode that's AEC focused, but it's something that's relevant to all businesses. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this one, um, when it comes to, you know managing your employees and making sure that you're doing right by them and develop developing them and you know making sure you retain them because uh, there's obviously a lot of competition out there for talent and construction and architecture and engineering so um yeah yeah it was uh, we joked about having a debbie phillips uh reading book list so we may have put that together but you know it was a great episode i was very thankful for having on one of my professors and uh you know what i hope you get to listen to it enjoy and check back for more Welcome back for another episode. Today's guest is Dr. Debbie Phillips, president of Quadrillion and adjunct professor at the New School of Architecture and Design. How's it going, Dr. Debbie? It is fantastic, and I am so excited about sharing some ideas and thoughts with everyone today, so it's fantastic. I'm, I'm especially excited. So um, Jackson had already brought on one of his professors, and he was actively always looking for other professors of his own, so I felt like I had to do the same. So Dr. Debbie is a professor of mine. It's been a long time. I won't say how long, but it's been a while. Um, So before we dive into the kind of this topic of talent engagement and even this talent crisis that we're all facing, can you kind of tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, who you are, what kind of drives you, your passion? Well, I have been in the real estate industry for 34 years, and you may say, you know, how does that tie into AEC integration? But uh, One of the things that I am most focused on now is the sweet spot between workforce development, real estate, and education. And recently, and I know we'll get into this, but I just want to encourage the audience to visit careersbuildingcommunities.org. And the reason that site is so exciting to me is because a lot of times people just fall into their jobs. Now, Chris, you went to Georgia Tech and and you studied uh, building construction and you had a, a path. But a lot of people 
discover their path as they go along. And I think we're all in kind of that discovery phase if we're honest with ourselves. But I had the opportunity to participate in careersbuildingcommunities.org as a way to bring more people, more talent in to the built environment. And so we have architectures, engineers, uh, construction, we have all of that represented on that site. So it's a great way. Um, and I just want to encourage all of your listeners to look at that interactive quiz that is on that site, because it actually helps people kind of say, hey, I might be interested in uh, building construction or uh, any of those pathways. So I just bring that up, Chris, as a way to really scope the conversation around what we're going to talk about today, and that's talent. How do we recruit talent? How do we source that talent and engage that talent? I think it's great. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm still trying to figure out my path. So I totally understand where you're coming from. If you told me I'd be doing a podcast when I was in your class, I'd think you're crazy. Um, yeah. So, you know, again, the main thing we want to talk about here today is, um, well, a couple of things we're all facing. We, we've heard from many guests, from many articles we read about this sort of talent crisis across all industries, really. I mean, our industry is not immune to that. We're dealing with shortages of labor. We're dealing with, um, you know, jobs just not aligning to what people are looking for. And when we last talked, you you brought up this idea of this employee empowerment error. And, you know, I think that's a great place to start. You want to talk a little bit about, you know, what you mean by that and uh, kind of what is the space that we're all finding ourselves in right now? Well, if you look at any article, whether it be out of SHRM, the Society of Human Resource Management, any, uh, you know, industry trade journal, one of the headlines is always going to be talking about talent, uh, particularly in the real estate industry. I say it's easier to find financial capital today than it is to find human capital. And as a result of the pandemic, I think the latest statistic that I read that was like one in four employees are planning to leave their job as the pandemic subsides. So people are really questioning their purpose, their paycheck, and what about their pathway in terms of they're asking themselves, is there another path for my career? And I, I said when we were having our planning call that I really believe that it's an error of the employee because today the employee's saying, you know, I'm not so uh, quick to go back to, uh, you know, in-person workplace right away. I do want to have time to, you know, do some household tasks in between my meetings. Uh, I do want to get out and take a walk on my lunch break where I might not have that opportunity at my office space. So the rules of work are really changing and they're changing not just from an employer standpoint, but from the employee standpoint. And I think it really is driving a larger conversation around what does talent engagement, and I think we're gonna get into that, but a satisfied employee says, I like my work. An engaged employee says, I love my company. They're using that discretionary effort to really 
drive innovation. Um, you and Jackson are all into to that and, and looking at, you know, new ways to, to engage with your, your clients. But I think right now, today, what we need to be focused on is creating a more meaningful workplace. Work doesn't have to be in a physical space. Work needs to be how we do it, how we engage our heart. You know, it's a lot of heart work, not just hard work. Hard work is when you're not in alignment. Hard work is where you're saying, I love my coworkers. I love my clients. I, I enjoy solving real problems with passionate people. And so I think today uh, and going forward, the landscape is going to be much different. You know, I've heard um, a quote, something like, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. And, and part of that is on, you know, capitalizing on a certain business venture or not. But, you know, when we look at what we've all dealt with now, I mean, what you just described, I would think should have always been the mentality of work. You know, do you have any speculation as to why it sort of took us now to like, we all were just forced to go home that we realized that work could be different? Well, I think that, you know, we all get set in our ways and, you know, we're all resistant to change. I always say, you know, the only person that really likes change is a wet baby. Um, <laughs> so we, we all are, are creatures of, of comfort. If you read that book, uh, Comfort Crisis, typically we don't make change until we have to. And I think that there were a lot of silver linings uh, as a result of the pandemic because, I, let's face it, I'm a baby boomer. I grew up in a workplace where people had to be seen to be believed that they were actually working. And so, you know, and that's why I love teaching you and others at great colleges and universities because, Chris, you taught me more than I probably taught you. But I think we have to rethink, you know, our whole notion of what does meaningful work look like and where does it really take place? Um, I was on a flight the other day to Miami and two architects uh, were sitting side by side. One was a senior principal. I think I might have mentioned this in our call. One was a senior principal and one was relatively new with the firm. She'd been there for three years. And Chris, he never opened his computer. Now, I know he had a ton of emails waiting on him. But the point that I'm trying to make is he chose people over paperwork. He chose to invest in that young architect in those casual conversations. So if we want to be really best in class in our firms today, we have to be lifelong learners. We have to be lifelong listeners. We have to say, you know what? I care so much about my team. I want to invest in them. And um, I just found that I, you know, my personality by now, I was sitting in 17C and they were in 17A and B and I couldn't keep my mouth shut. And I, I just told them, I said, what y'all are doing is radical mentoring. It's radical love where Here's the senior principal. They're going to two job sites. Basically, the job sites were about 
you know, within walking distance of each other, but they had two different project managers and the senior architect was talking with the young architect about how they were going to handle the problem solving, how they were going to handle the personalities. And the only reason I mentioned that is because prior to the pandemic, we probably would have had to have a meeting in a conference room. We had to have an agenda. We had to say, hey, we're going to go over these client projects. We're probably going to have to have a SWOT analysis. And there was that free flowing conversation right there on the airplane. So I bring that up because that's just one example of our learning agility and our leadership agility. So, you know, companies themselves, their management, you know, they know what the purpose of the company is. But when you drill it down to an individual level, um, maybe those people who are coming, you know, straight out of school or they've been there for a few years, um, they know what their day to day is, but they don't necessarily know what their purpose is or they're struggling to find their purpose. Um, you know, the days become monotonous. Um, you know, the days become the same and it gets to a point where you just kind of feel stuck and you struggle yourself to find the purpose. Um, how can, you know, management and companies as a whole, you know, figure out a way to provide their employees with purpose? Cause obviously no two people are the same, you know, some people have families, some people don't, how do you provide your employees with purpose and make it not feel so monotonous. <laughs> right. Well, and what you're talking about really, Jackson, is what I term as career pathing. Because there's a difference in a mission statement and a purpose statement. And I really encourage everybody to spend time and create their purpose statement. You know, I made a, a conscious decision a few years ago to shift from being performance-driven to purpose-driven. I'm an overachiever. I love a scoreboard. And I love, you know, playing by a set of rules. And I think sometimes if you look at millennials and Gen Z, and we can talk about kind of the different generations in the workplace. But I think when it comes down to it, everybody's got to say, this is my why. This is what I come to do every day. And Chris has heard me talk for years about playing in your genius zone. I think when you play to your strengths, it's not quite so uh, rote or scripted. I talk about a career lattice, not a career ladder, because sometimes in small firms, upward up is not the only way to go. I mean, you, people have to die for you to get a place in the, you know, the corner office. But I think to really stifle that monotonous, like, oh my God, I'm just, you know, watching or punching a clock kind of mentality. It's to really think about, and this is why Gen Z and millennials are so vital to a thriving workplace, is because you can positively challenge things. Um, 
I'm a baby boomer and I resist change. I'm thinking, well, you know, Rockefeller, I think said good is the enemy of great, you know, and you never want to become complacent. So I think that to avoid that humdrum, going in there, knocking out the work, leaving, I think we have to have an element of um, surprised uh, opportunities to really think about what could I do differently in my in my role? You know, Google, I think, rewards uh, its workforce. 10% of your time can be spent uh, solving problems, doing whatever, you know, kind of, you know, juices you up, so to speak. So I think everybody has a responsibility. It's not just the employer's responsibility to create a workplace that is engaging. It's the employee, the learner, as I say, you got to come to the game hungry and you got to come to the game saying, hey, I want to work on this. Um, so it's a two way street. We uh, we've kind of danced around this idea of talent engagement, but what you know, in your perspective, um, how do you define talent engagement? Like, what is it? I think engagement is really, you know, uh, there's a great author um, and they come from the Strength Finders group from Gallup. His name is Clifton. And Clifton really defined employee engagement as an employee using their discretionary effort. You know, that's what I call that extra mind power to think about how do we do things differently? And I'm not saying that you know, everything has to be changed, but an engaged in, uh, engaged employee is looking for the opportunity, number one, to do meaningful work, number two, to see a company where it could be, not where it is, and a lot of times, engaged employees, see, only about 18 to 20 percent of the workforce is engaged. There's three types of workers. You have engaged, you have enrolled, and you have disengaged. The engaged employees are about that 20%. Those are the people that are coming hungry every day to do something better than they did the day before. The enrolled are there just kind of going through the motions. The disengaged Okay, that's about, you know, another 20% on the bottom level that's looking for a new job on your watch. And I always say the most expensive employee is the one that quits and stays. Yep. So we have to do a better job of what we call job fit, matching people to their strengths and to the job. You know, when we ask somebody to do it, we have to know that they not only have the skill, but the will to do that, that job. And a lot of the disengaged employees have been, um, let's say, mismatched. We're asking people to do something that, A, they have no interest in doing, or B, kind of their, their candle has burned out. And it seems like, I mean, I know in our industry, this happens a lot, is, and maybe in others, is 
longevity equates to a promotion. So I've been somewhere for five years, I get a promotion, but my skill set and talent and motivation doesn't necessarily mean I need to go that route. And so, I mean, I've seen employees come and go where it's like, well, the next step was for them to become a director, but they didn't really want that. So they went somewhere else, but I never understood like why it has to go that way. Um, that you, you know, because then what happens, I believe pretty strongly is people that get into those roles, got into those based on skills they had for something else. So it's like, Hey, I was a really great salesperson. Well, I've been here for five years. That means or 10 years. Hey, you need to now be a sales manager. Those are a different skill set. And I wasn't grown up to be a sales manager. So now I'm a really bad sales manager, you know? So now I have even worse attitude because you took away what I love. You know, is that just how we, ha- I mean, is that something that needs to get fixed or is that just, um, you know, is that a mentality that we've all kind of embraced that you've been here five years? It's take this next promotion. Well, a lot of it has to do, and we can talk about workplace culture, but a lot of times leadership has not put enough brain power to figure out what's an alternative path for someone. Um, Chris, you mentioned the, the sales person that's extremely successful, then they get promoted to being a sales manager and they hate it. We see that all the time in... I spend a lot of my time in property management and we'll see somebody, a leasing professional, they are a crackerjack leasing professional. And the only way leadership knows what to do is to promote them to an assistant manager, stick them in the office and post rent. Well, that's the biggest way you can kill enthusiasm because sales minded people, they love the thrill of the hunt. They love, you know, um, creating relationships with new customers and that kind of thing. So I think we have to be, uh, that's why I mentioned the career lattice versus the career ladder. Another thing that leadership needs to do is to create a professional development plan for every employee. Because, you know, you talk about, you hear a lot about exit interviews. There's a lot of talk today around staying interviews, like we want you to stay here. What does staying here look like? And, you know, a lot of times people, they take the path of least resistance. They'll say, oh, well, we have to do employee reviews. You should be doing professional development plans. You know, you should be asking a a team member, Where do you want to go and where do you want to grow and how might I help you grow? Um, It might be getting, you know, additional certifications. It might be uh, mentoring somebody. It might be working on a corporate recruiting team uh, to go out and visit colleges and universities. There's so many different avenues that you can reward and recognize people, but you don't, that doesn't necessarily mean an upward promotion. So um, I've always kind of thought about this, um, how an employee versus somebody in management, how they would define, like somebody in management, how they define the perfect employee and vice versa, how an employee defines management they want to work for. Um, Do those two definitions have to jive to have a successful culture in an organization? I think you have to, 
and I want us I want us to talk about culture. You know, I think it has to do with the culture because if you're not in alignment with the the leadership and the values and the vision, if you've ever driven a, a car out of alignment, it can get very bumpy. And those relationships can be very bumpy when you have a team or an individual that seems to be going in one direction and leadership is like, no, we need to be focused on something else. So I definitely think there has to be some alignment with a person's values. The other thing that I think that has to happen is a lot of people, I think they dismiss an entrepreneurial mindset because I don't care what position you're in. I always say you make a better employee when you've had to make payroll, that when you've had to think about the income side of the business, focusing on the revenue side of the business, every employee, every team member needs to be thinking about how do I drive value to that company? And if you are not a value creator, I don't think you're ever going to be able to thrive to the level you could thrive in a work setting. Um, and, and I'm a huge fan of teaching enterprise thinking, entrepreneurship, whatever you want to call it. But people need to understand the fundamentals of business. Yeah, you know, I was reading this book that's on like, uh, you know, five steps in business strategy or something. And, and, and it talks about even the concept of entrepreneurs. You know, there are those individuals that maybe they don't have that, that part of the um, makeup that they need to run a company, but they want to have the skill set to drive within a firm. And I think it goes to culture to allow those type of people to thrive. I mean, you mentioned the Google 10%. I've um, in my current role as uh, director of innovation, I've done a lot of research on how do companies give their employees time to innovate, to think. And, you know, that one's unique because they've come up with things like Gmail, you know, stuff that we're used to came out of that time. Now, the argument's always, hey, I'm a small firm, I can't afford to do that. But I do think it's interesting for all companies, or maybe at a management level, to think about the as an, yes, as an employee who doesn't have to make payroll, you're not going to have that. I'm not going to say you're not going to have that fire. You just, you don't know what it's like to miss payroll, right? You, you don't know what it's going to be like. Um, so is that something that when you're going into management or leadership, whatever, you just have to take that on. Like there is no way of trying to make that salesperson understand. It's just acknowledgement that they're not going to understand this. How can I educate them? I mean, what is it we need to do to help educate those, those team members on, you know, that, that struggle that we go through? Well, I think we have as leaders, we have to do a better job of educating everybody on the team that when a customer has a positive experience, a customer says, when you're creating an experience, I was just the other day at Lexus, and you know my personality by now. I couldn't help myself. There was a young lady on the floor, and she was checking the car in. And I was there, and the roll-up door was down. And so I was first in line, but there was another car in front of me, and she pulled the car in the, in the service dealership area. 
And so she just put the roll up door down and she plopped a cone right in front of the car. And there was nothing, there was not a gesture, there was not a hand signal that says, hey, you're next. And I thought to myself, here's a young lady, very naive. She didn't really even understand how her mannerisms, positively or negatively, impacted my impression of her level of service. Well, so you make an argument that, well, she's just the check-in person. She's just the greeter. She's the service greeter, whatever her role is. But again, at the end of the day, I couldn't help myself. I had to go over there and help her understand what that customer experience meant to the firm, to the organization, to the dealership, because there's four other dealerships in a 30 mile radius. And I think that leadership today, they take for granted that somebody knows their role. And I talk about roles and goals. Everyone on a team feeds in to the revenue side of the business. And I think it's important as leaders that we show everyone on the team what the benefit is of creating a customer experience that is not only positive, but it's one that somebody wants to go and share. It's one thing, because I talk about customer referrals all the time. That is the most profitable form of business is when you have a satisfied customer that refers you to somebody else. And so I think we have to also think about learning and development. And this kind of ties back to employee engagement. A person will stay at a firm where they have the opportunity to learn and to grow. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. How important do you think the first few weeks or the first few months of an employee's time at a company are towards them, you know, buying into the culture, um, knowing their role and just, you know, their overall like retention those first few weeks or first few months extremely important onboarding you know how many times and um you know our audience can can think about this how many times have we had a team member that joined our firm and we didn't it took us a week to get their login credentials or their you know, computer <laughs> I, I mean just those kind of little things um you know, how many times have we hired somebody and we said, oh, our, our team members are our most important asset and we weren't even there on the first day. You know, I mean, I think we have to be, and I want everybody to, to make a mental note of this. Intentions are great, 
but if we're not executing, you know, I, I love that book by Sean Covey, uh, Four Disciplines of Execution. I think we really need to focus on, again, that team member experience. Um, so Jackson, onboarding is extremely important. The, the informal check-ins, the intentionality of a new team member meeting with the different departments um, and, and making that really sacred time, not just, oh, well, well, if we get around to it. No, we need to be intentional about setting up those breakfasts, those lunch and learns, those virtual coffees. And even if we're working remotely, uh, just being intentional and making sure that those conversations actually happen because it's lonely. It's lonely when you work remotely and we could talk about that too. But onboarding sets the tone for the relationship. You know, how do you welcome somebody? How do you get to know somebody on a very personal level? And it's so like, oh man, we almost made it. You know, I must say, Dr. Debbie, that up until like we tried one episode and Jackson put his mic on a mic stand and we interrupt each other all day. But mm -hmm. normally I'm really good at watching him use his mic and I don't interrupt him. And did I not just oh, run, all, run all over him? Go ahead, man. So I, um, I come from a construction background and, you know, I went to school for construction management uh, and, you know, that, that was what I was going to do. And, you know, I get out there, I'm in the field, I'm in the office. I interact with all of these different people all day long. Um, and then, you know, I go to a company where I work from home and my coworkers are my cats and like those first few months, it was incredibly lonely. Like no matter how many zoom calls I did or phone calls, how, <laughs> and you know, in the AEC industry, we don't have too many people that work from home all the time, but for companies that do, how can you, um, make sure that your, you know, employees don't have that feeling of isolation and loneliness, but they feel like they're on a team, even though it's a virtual world. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. I just finished a, a program uh, talking about uh, employee engagement in a virtual world. And there's only so many quote virtual happy hours you can have with the team. Um, but I think Three things I would recommend, and I want all of your listeners to write this down. It's called F-O-R, Family Occupation Recreation. You know, when you know somebody's family structure, when you know, you know, what does their spouse or their roommate or how long they've been in the industry, uh, something about, you know, the, their occupation recreation, what do they like to do for fun? And I think it's very important that you build in some margin in your schedules, um, that you don't cram, you know, too many meetings on one day. Um, some of the best in class companies today are having a, a you know, no meeting day, um, so that people actually get some, some deep work done. Uh, by the way, that's a wonderful book by Cal Newport called Deep Work. 
And it talks about, you know, how do you focus? How do you get concentration? But I think, Jackson, one thing that we need to be very cognizant of is knowing our people, knowing our team, family, occupation, recreation, but also whether it's on Slack or other, you know, um, messaging systems is to be able to connect with people and say, hey, everybody needs to take a break. Go get you, go get you a bottle of water or, you know, stand up and stretch. And I think it, again, it has to be, somebody's got to champion that. And then somebody's got to make sure that it happens, but then also having informal check-ins because with people, you know, and this was particularly during the pandemic, when people were trying to teach their kids, work off the kitchen table, um, there was a lot of dysfunction and a lot of craziness that was happening off the screen. And people, you know, kind of came to the screen showing up, but maybe there was a lot going on behind the scenes. So I think, Jackson, to your point, it starts with knowing your people and it starts with creating ways to not judge people. That's another thing. And just a lot of you, you're hearing more about mindfulness in the workplace. Um, I think we need to have a space for grace. I think we need to, you know, go slow to go fast and really talking about it. Um, I think a lot of cu cultures today are now actually talking about mental health in team meetings because it's important. Um, and I don't think we saw that prior to the pandemic, which is another, um, you know, nice uh topic that we're now addressing with with more compassion a um, couple of things one i think we're gonna have to have a dr debbie reading list to send out I, I have i have read a couple of those books believe it or not yeah. um but you know it's interesting you meant to mention the um the mental health aspect because it does seem as in this world of remote isolation, um, and here we're talking about engagement, how to engage our employees, recognizing the mental health um, in things that people go through, I think is something that maybe it was taboo before, uh, you know, people didn't want to talk about it. Um, I, I myself, I had to go on medicine for anxiety a couple years ago, because it got to the point where I just couldn't deal with all the stuff I was dealing with. And so it's stuff that everyone is now getting more and more comfortable talking about. We're hearing athletes and you know, Olympians sit out of events because of it. So I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, one thing it seems like is in all of our, all of our companies, we are, unless you're a nonprofit, we are for-profit businesses. So we're looking to be as productive as possible, as soon as possible, you know, and do we have, does a good culture, you know, this kind of takes us into this last part, but does a good culture have to come at um, you know, an impact to the bottom line. I mean, can you have a great culture and also have a very profitable business or are those always going to be sort of fighting each other in terms of how do I give you time for a break, but how do we turn over this project? Well, burnout is the number one reason people are leaving the workplace and burnout happens a lot more 
apparent before you even realize it. Burnout happens when maybe we're short with a customer or, you know, we experience impatience waiting on something. So everybody has different triggers and you can read uh, about the triple bottom line. You can look at all the workplace studies about when you have uh, well employees and wellness can be on six or eight different dimensions. And we could talk about that. Um, I actually gave a program not too long about goose care. You can't keep giving golden eggs if you don't take care of the goose. Uh, I encountered a health crisis in 2019, and I'm absolutely certain it was because I was burning the candle at both ends. So there have been a number of studies, um, and I'd like to throw out another book. Um, it's called Patients Come Second, and it's all around if you don't, you know, the better we feel about ourselves, the better we treat others. And if uh, and I've got study after study after study that says a healthier employee is a more profitable employee to the company. But all that is well and good, but when you have a deadline at a company and you are trying to crank out a proposal or you are trying to meet a client's expectation, very few of us say, oh, stop and go for a 20-minute walk. I mean, it, there's this disconnect between what we say is important and what we do. So I think we have to have more accountability with each other. If I'm working with Jackson and Chris and, you know, I want them to be healthier, I want to take care of them, that's the mother in me. But at the same time, I want us to be aware that, do we need to add one more thing to our list? I want you to think about OMT, one more thing. We are so guilty in the workplace. There was an article in Harvard Business Review the other day, I mean, a couple of months ago, and it was called The Initiative Overload. Companies today are loading their employees with more initiatives. You know, it's the sustainability, it's the diversity, it's the, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I think right now as leaders, and I'm talking to myself, I want us to think about what are the essentials? What are the absolute rocks in our jar that are the non-negotiables that we are going to set as culture forming that, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be radical things. It might be just not scheduling meetings on a Friday afternoon so people can catch up with their work, not having meetings on Monday morning so people can kind of ease into their week. And you say, well, all that's great, Debbie, but I'm shorthanded. I mean, I hear that all the time. I'm down three employees. What do you expect me to do? I expect you to take a stand to the customer. Mm -hmm. And I expect for you to say, we're going to do our very best and we're going to deliver a quality project to you, but not, as, not at the expense of our employees. And when you make a stand, 
My mama used to say, if you don't know what you'll stand for, you'll fall for anything. But I think leaders, we need to stand up and take care of our people. And uh, I'm going to always be on the side of wellness. That's such great advice, because I do think in our industry, you know, the client, I mean, we hear this all the time, customer is always right, you know, and the customer knows best. And, and I, you know, we may have been put in positions where we felt like as an employee, we were being asked to do something that was pretty unreasonable, that if we look, it was against our values. I mean, maybe not immoral or legal, but I mean, it was just not what we stood for and, but we're doing it anyway, but to have someone speak out to a customer and say, Hey, you know, this is not unreasonable, but Hey, I'll get it to you on Monday. Not, not Friday afternoon when I know you're not going to look at it, you know, I'll get it to you on Monday. Um, I think those are things that we don't, we don't think to do a lot. And when we hear, we talk to people all the time when we're talking about how to automate workflows and make them more efficient. And, you know, I'm reading this book about strategy. And one of the things they say is, you know, list out all the steps something takes and then take one of those steps and see if you can eliminate it and then take another one of those steps and see if you can improve it by 1%. Now, the reason I mentioned that is if our argument is we're overworked and we don't have the people, maybe we need to take a couple steps back and say, okay, well, how do I now give you time back in your day? Um, you know, as trying to create a pro, uh, you know, a process of innovation at applied software, one of our biggest things is we're all really busy. So, okay, well, instead of me just stopping and saying, well, I can't do it until I have somebody to help. It's how do I make time? We only have 24 hours. How do I make time? Maybe it is more, less meetings. You know, maybe it is standing up to a customer. And so I do really like that um, advice as we're looking to build an, um, an engaging culture, because as an employee, you know, I, I'll work harder for someone if they say, uh, quite honestly, if we had a customer say, I need something on Friday and you said, Dr. Debbie, you know, that's unreasonable. We'll get to you Monday. I'll probably finish it on Friday. You know, I, I'll be motivated enough that I appreciate the effort. I appreciate what you said. I'll probably finish it. But if you ask me to do it on Friday, I'm going to begrudgingly do it. I'll finish it, you know, and I'll, you know, or the, the people that say, Hey, we need you to come in on Saturday. It's like, well, do we really need that? You know um, I, I think that's so important. So when we talk about engagement and we talk about the importance of culture, you know, what is the biggest thing that now in a, in remote work, all of those things. Well, if you're giving somebody one piece of advice on developing a good culture, what would you tell them? Well, I, I think culture starts when you know who you are and you know who you're not. Because, you know, it's unrealistic for a company to think that they're gonna be, you know, the size of Google if they don't even have two employees at the moment, you know, I think you have to get real with yourself. And I think culture starts with really understanding your place and what you're trying to do. You know, Simon Sinek, if you look at that great work, uh, the infinite game, start with why leaders eat last. Uh, Simon Sinek has some incredible body of work. But understanding your why, what, what are you really trying to do? Um, and I think, you know, when you're talking about creating a culture that people want to be a part of, I want all of your audience to write this down. People tend to support that which you help to create. 
People tend to support that which you help to create. So if you're not bringing people into a room saying, how might we create that HMW? For culture to come out on a memo or on a website, it just is not going to be authentic. It's not going to be genuine. So I think the first place to start in creating a culture is to get everybody in a room and decide what you want to be and what is your why. The other thing, Chris, you mentioned, you know, the strategy and systems and processes. I would tell everybody to read that book by James Clear, Atomic Habits. You know, James Clear says you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems and processes. And if you don't have a culture that embraces telling people the truth, if you don't have a culture that says we're open for change, uh, the biggest room in the world is the room for improvement. So I think culture has to be something that you live in, you swim in every day. It's not, you know, we're going to identify five values and we're going to make sure everything we do lines up with those five values. I think that's totally and completely unrealistic. I think it's having something vibrant where you come to the game every day and you think about what is my role? What is my goal? How can I drive results in what I do every day? So culture starts with understanding your why. I, uh, you know, I didn't think about it until now. I'm reading, if I could throw out a book. Yes, not I as, love it. <laughs> no, I know. I, I, so I've been reading or listening to um, the uh, five love languages. So it's an older, older book, right? And it talks about these five love languages and how in relationships we tend to not know our own love language. We also don't know, you know, our partners. Um, you know, I could be buying gifts all day for my, my wife and her love language may be quality time. And I don't understand why we're misaligned and something I haven't thought about, but I feel like there's gotta be an equivalent on in the business side. And maybe it's the same five love languages, but I don't think it's something we ever think about in the workplace when we're building a culture is really understanding, you know, Jackson mentioned, does a manager, perfect employee have to align to a um, employee's perfect manager? But if we both understand each other's professional love languages, then I would tend to guess as we build a culture, uh, what we're going to get is I know what motivates you and I understand you as an individual. Um, so you may not need, you may not want to raise, like you may just want a day off. You know, um, you may just want the ability to have ownership in or autonomy in your day. And so I, I think that's a great thing to think about was, you know, the bringing everyone in a room and asking us, what do we want to be? What is our why? Because it's not so much mandated. It's I have ownership in this. I care about it. Um, and I think it's a great thing to walk away with and how we're building an engaging culture. Well, you mentioned, Chris, the love languages, and Gary Chapman has written that book, Five Love Languages in the Workplace, and it, it's a red, it's a, I got it right over here, it's a red, uh, it's got a red cover on it, and the reason I'm, I'm so thankful that you brought that up, because people want to be recognized for meaningful work, 
you know, and they want to be recognized for something specific. If you look at the work of Carol Dweck in Mindset, she said people either have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And when you reward somebody and you recognize them for doing quality work, you need to be specific. Um, and when you see pay, pay is actually, I think, number three on the list. Mm -hmm. um, you know, why people do the work that they do. But understanding and offering recognition and appreciation for doing meaningful and good quality work uh, is a great place to start. And I, I called it earlier. I said, it's heart work. When you engage somebody's heart and somebody like, Chris, there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. I mean, when you called and you invited me to be a guest on your podcast, I was like, whatever he needs, whatever you need, I am there because we have a bond. And I think there's a lot of um, information about emotional bonding in the workplace. And I think when you are bonded to one another because you share some of the same values, you share that commitment to quality. And the other thing I want to mention before we end, another significant driver of employee engagement is trust. Trust between the employee and their immediate supervisor. So if there's dysfunction on a team, nine times out of 10, it's lack of trust. And so I didn't want to end our, our session without certainly bringing up what I call it, the foundation of business and friendship is trust. Um, for anyone that isn't watching the video, so this does go on YouTube and whatnot, but there's a bookshelf, two, three bookshelves, four bookshelves full of books. And I think just one shelf of those were all listed during this podcast. So I appreciate that. We'll have, to, yeah, we're going to have to get a Dr. Debbie reading list. <laughs> into the description. Well, I always say, if you're going to lead, you got to read. Yeah, no, and you, yeah, no, that was great. Well, we, uh, we really appreciate um, you coming on at, you know, as you mentioned, and we, we reached out and we were so appreciative that you wanted to join us. Oh, I so. wanted to. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Learned a lot. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoy this episode. Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software 2022.